This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash library channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire you to read, write, think, and dream. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm looking into a very bright light, um, and I'm very happy to welcome you to this evening's event. Um, I am Brian Schottlander, the Audrey Geisel University Librarian here at UC San Diego, um, and it's my pleasure to welcome you um, to the reception that you've just been enjoying and the book signing in celebration of the new volume, One Souffle at a Time, and the two very talented women who are responsible for that book. Um, before I introduce uh, Anne and her co-author, Amy, um, I'd like to thank my friend and colleague, Linda Claussen, who is the director of our Special Collections and Archives. Where is Linda? Hi, Linda. Um, it's Linda who is responsible for luring Anne and Amy down from L.A., although having lived in L.A. for 15 years myself, I don't think it was too much of a lure. Um, and for organizing this incredible event today. Um, Linda, as many of you know, uh, is the steward of our own American Institute of Wine and Food collection, um, a culinary collection of some 6,000-plus items, books, manuscripts, and other materials that document uh, both culinary history and culinary culture dating back to the 17th century. And not surprisingly, Linda assures me that we already have all of Anne's volumes, um, including one souffle at a time. Now, speaking of Anne, let me tell you a little bit more about her. Um, widely recognized as one of the world's preeminent authorities on French cooking, Anne Willen founded the École de Cuisine La Varenne in Paris in 1975 and is a recipient of the International Association of Culinary Professionals Lifetime Achievement Award, the James Beard Award, and the Bon Appetit Teacher of the Year Award. She is the author of more than 30 cookbooks, including La Varenne Pratique, uh, the 17-volume Look and Cook series, and Country Cooking of France. The latter volume won not one, but two James Beard Foundation Book Awards in 2008. Last year, she wrote the fascinating The Cookbook Library, Four Centuries of the Cooks, Writers, and Recipes that Made the Modern Cookbook. Uh, and I understand several of you in the room were able to attend Anne's presentation last year, as I myself was not, because I was on the road. Um, so I'm very pleased to be able to join you all for this evening. Uh, the Cookbook Library uh, is a volume that is based on um, Anne's and her husband's, Mark's, extensive antiquarian cookbook collection. Amy Friedman, to Anne's left, is Anne's co-author of One Souffle at a Time, um, and also the author of Desperado's Wife, a memoir. She writes the internationally syndicated column, Tell Me a Story, for Universal Press Syndicate. Please join me, won't you, in welcoming both Anne and Amy. Thank you. Thank you. That's very kind. And I also want to thank Linda, who brought us together. 
and Chef Ed, who is a wonderful cook. Each time he kind of picks up my recipes, um, and they're always delicious. Um, and I just wanted to mention what you've been eating, because there are little stories, of course, that are attached to each one, because the recipes in the book weren't were chosen to illustrate a story, not the other way around. And so cheese balls were for my aunt, who's a wonderful grand dame with white hair up here and addicted to very dry martinis <laughs> for the cheese balls. That go very well with the cheese balls, yeah. by the way. It does go <laughs> perfect. Um, smoked salmon rillette would have come from Lavarin Cooking School in Paris, where if we had little bits of leftovers, Chef Chambrette, who was a wonderful chef, um, had two stars in his time. Fridays would clean out the refrigerator, and that was always the best meal of the week. And this would have been a little bit of leftover smoked salmon and a little bit of leftover cooked salmon. And then coronation chicken is from when I was at the Cordon Bleu in London, actually before I, I myself was teaching at the school, um, which was in the early 1960s and was created by the London Cordon Bleu for the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. And the school which was run by women, um, were commissioned to um, create the banquet and indeed execute the banquet for the coronation feast after the coronation. So that was really pretty pioneering for two women to be asked to do that. And then Pujarski is another woman, um, a trainee of ours who look, helped look after our children for three years, wonderful Linda Collister and her previous employer was still in the royal family, had been the Queen Mother. And the Pozharsky recipe is Russian and had been come into the royal family from um, Queen Victoria and the connection um, with the Russian royal family. So, very different mixed recipes. And the Hippocras. And the Hippocras, which actually is from my other book, which is on display over there, but um, with some far more distinguished and older books. And I just wanted to hold up one of those wonderful books from the collection, the old collection of antiquarian books that you have here, which is one of the most distinguished, certainly on the West Coast, um, and one of the most distinguished in the United States. And this, I uh, gave a little, oh, because it was, it's a manuscript book, it was written or compiled by Anne Clutterbuck. I'm an Anne, and Clutterbuck has got to have come from Yorkshire 
because it's the absolute Yorkshire name and that's where I come from. So I felt a little leap of the heart, you know? And um, we wanted to begin at the beginning, which was, oh, me sitting round the table and telling stories, which I'm often doing, with our daughter. And Emma said, Mum, you're always telling stories. You should write them down. And then she said, you should write a memoir. So I said, oh, well, I'll try. So I went away and I wrote a chapter and I passed it round the family again. And there was a sort of silence. (laughs) And Todd, our son-in-law, who's enormously helpful, took the bull by the horns and said, Anne, you need help. (laughs) And help emerged um, in the form of the wonderful Amy, who is expert in writing memoirs. And would you like to talk... Do you want me to take take the bull by the horns here? Take the bull by the horns here. How I came into this project was... um, a, a friend, a friend of mine, was friends with Anne's son-in-law, and she was looking for a writer. So I was one of the people who auditioned, and there was this moment that was just pure luck um, because I. So I gave a couple of writing samples, and it happens that um, I lived on a sheep farm at one point in Canada for many years, and so one of the pieces that I gave was a, a lambing piece, and Todd phoned me up couple days later and said, you have no idea how often we talk about lambs and sheep in this household. So you, I think you're a shoe-in. So, um, sheep country. Sheep country. There she is. Cute, eh? Um, but um, but one, of the, one of the elements, um, so we had an interview and we immediately got along. Um, and... Um, one of the things Anne said now is if you're going to write this story, so, so um, I, I do this. I, I teach memoir. I write my own memoirs. I work with other people who write memoirs. But she said, I really insist that you, you'll have to take this trip to go see the places that are the important places in my life. So Yorkshire, where she was born. London, um, uh, where, where she went to the Lord, London Cordon Bleu. Paris where she lived for many, many years and opened Lavarenne, and Burgundy to the chateau in Burgundy where Lavarenne moved. And poor me, you know, I had to go on this <laughs> terrible <laughs> This trip was difficult. But, but what happened um, was so, so very early on I went. We had talked a couple of times, and, and then I went off. And the minute, I mean, the reason this picture is so powerful is that when I was in Yorkshire, um, I was lucky enough, um, the family, the Willen family, family doesn't live still in the house where Anne grew up, but through friends of the family, I was able to go to the house. And so the house is on a, a rise and, and with a 180 degree view. And I, and I stood there and I, all of a sudden I knew, you know, place is such an important part of people's stories. And it was like standing there was when I first had this real sense of where she came from. 
Um, and so we sort of began, I mean, you know, there, there were other amazing things that happened in terms of place um, that we'll get to. But, but I, I thought it was really important that I understand this little girl from Yorkshire, how did she become famous for being a French cooking teacher and, and a writer of 30-odd cookbooks? And so we did a lot of talking about Yorkshire. And um, there, were, there were, you know, the, the important things about memoir, you have, to, you have to really go to back to your story. So I had to take her back to being a little girl in Yorkshire. And there she was telling me about one of the most important people. There were many important people in this woman's life, but one of the most important people was the family cook, Emily. So um, in the beginning, there was Nanny, but Nanny wasn't there for very long because she, this was um, at the beginning of World War II. She was called away to war. My father was not there because my father, too, was away fighting the war. So there was Mummy and me and Emily, three generations. And Emily was our cook who overflowed the edges of her kitchen stool. She tried to contain her bulk in peach-colored whalebone corsets, which she laced with a grimace each morning. She had no false modesty in front of me. Her hair was crumped into mar- crimped, crumped, into Marcel waves with giant, awe-inspiring bulldog clips. Emily was famous for her malapropisms. He died of the TDMs, she said, of one bloke in the village when she meant the DTs. And she often referred to the roaming Catholics. <laughs> well, I remember clearly. My mother laughed and laughed. But more than those malapropisms, I remember Thursdays, which was baking day. Best of all, Emily allowed me into her kitchen. On baking day, she woke at dawn to stoke the oven that had no thermostat. If the flue was open, the oven got hotter, and when it was closed, the oven slowly cooled. She baked us the week's jam tarts and maids of honor, Tarts topped with frangipane, made with ground rice instead of almonds when food was short. I still have Emily's rolling pin. I loved her ribbon cake, swirling with chocolate, egg yolk yellow and cochineal pink from beetles. Amy was rather um, shocked by that. Emily was. No, you were. The oh, Beatles. I was. Oh, the Beatles. Yes. Oh, was the I? The original red Nothing food coloring. <laughs> and not nearly as bad as it sounds. The chocolate bit was best. Emily placed the little cakes and scones that baked quickly into the oven first. Then came the larger cakes like sponge cake and currant loaf. And finally, as the oven cooled, the slow-baked fruit cakes puddings and custard tart. Officially, I wasn't permitted, and indeed, wasn't permitted to taste any of these treats until Friday. Emily had her firm beliefs, and one of these was that fresh cakes were bad for the digestion. Thus, she squirreled them away as soon as they cooled. 
and I must have been at least ten before I realized how good cake fresh from the oven tasted. (laughs) I would stand watching Emily line up these aromatic treats to cool, and my mouth watered with desire. (laughs) You can tell where my priorities started, can't you? So maybe you want to go to the next slide. The, the, you know, just to, there's Anne in the middle there. Um, Going to a wedding, and I was quite young there. I was about 12 or 13, I think. And her mother, um, I mean, I, so, so her parents were no longer living by the time we started this project, but one of the things that happens when you have these conversations, we would, we would sit and talk every week. Um, I would tape record um, and, um, and bring her it's back. It's a huge amount of work. Um, we tape recorded for two, two and a half hours. Then um, Amy went home and transcribed it. And then she picked the bits that she felt were important and reflected the development of the whole story and put them together. And then um, from that, you, you, your great gift was not just getting my voice down on paper, which of course is enormously important in a memoir, and which I hadn't managed at all, um, but also getting the underlying themes. And one of those um, you is more obvious, I think, than the place, but was the people. The people. So. You'll watch, you'll see this happen. So periodically, you know, one of the things about the conversation is, we, I didn't go in there saying, okay, we're going to go from 1938 to 1939, and I, you know, we just talked. And when I would see Anne get a little choked up, um, you know, I guess in polite society, what you do when you see somebody get, getting choked up is you change the subject or you veer away. But in memoir society, what you do when somebody gets choked up is you say, oh... I have to probe a little bit more deeply here. We can't leave this subject. And so, um, I mean, one of the reasons I love this picture so much is that lot, there were lots of stories of mom and dad. Not every story made it into the book, but, but you know, as you, as you write memoir and as Anne and I wrote together, in a sense, um, Absolutely. Uh, she traveled back in time. And so when I'd see her cry, we'd, I'd say, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll have to talk about that a little more or, you know, get sort of red in the face. Or um... My mother, of course, was one of the great characters. Um, and then? And then the other family character. Oh, well, Julia. Julia Child. Well, let's, let's go to Julia later because okay. we need to do, I think the, I think the next picture... We haven't really practiced with the pictures. But. Oh, well, this was when I was well on my way. Um, I was sent to boarding school, which is the black chapter mm. of the book. But I got an excellent academic education the, and went to Cambridge, where I was one of two women, or girls we were called, Um, reading economics among a hundred men and I would have been one of eleven men uh, one woman among eleven men 
throughout the university, um, proportionally. So we were very conspicuous, and there were very, very few of us. There were about a thousand. Um, And now, of course, it's co-education and equal numbers. So I went to Cambridge. um, I got a third-class degree, and they said, well, dear, why don't you take a secretarial course? (laughs) And I said to myself, though always polite not to the lady, um, I'm damned if I'm going to take a secretarial course. (laughs) And there's my voice going down. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I went to the Cordon Bleu in London, stayed on to teach, and... Then, if you wanted to learn more really about really good cooking, all good food came from France. Um, So I said to my parents, I want to go to France. I went to Switzerland as an au pair girl to learn French. And then I went to the Paris Cordon Bleu. Anyone who's seen Julia and Julia? Okay. You know where I went. Um, It's to the life. It had not changed one jot since Julia was there. Um, And somebody here was at the Cordon Bleu with the witch, Madame Brassard, terrible woman. I stayed 18 months to get the Grand Diplôme. I learned actually a lot just from living in France, but also from the chef. And I had to earn some money. So I put an advertisement, and I think it would have been the first in the International Herald Tribune, in the classifieds, um, food that was food-related. And I said, Cordon Bleu cooks for, um, gives cooking classes and cooks for dinner parties. And I had five replies, two from American women's groups. And that was a whole new world to me. Um, one from the councillor at the British Embassy who wanted canapes for cocktail parties. Um, one from a gentleman at the Georges Saint Hotel who wanted me to come and cook an intimate dinner for two. <laughs> She being number two. And I said no (laughs) to that. And one headed Chateau de Versailles. And on an engraved script. And a rather scrawled, slightly um, ungrammatical message that said, my name is Florence van der Kemp. Yes, Florence van der Kemp, who is now famous Um, I've just married the curator of the museum. I have Mexican servants, um, and I want to teach them to learn French cooking so that I can give dinner parties. And I thought, well, this is a joke. But never mind, always explore every avenue. So I took my little MG car, and I drove through the main gate at Versailles, and turned left over the cobblestones up to the El Colbert and met Florence Van der Kemp 
and she was for real. And so I started out giving cooking lessons to Bernardina, the Mexican cook who had cooked for Wells Fargo. Um, I learned very rapidly kitchen Spanish because she spoke um, a little bit of English but no French. And I went to live in the Chateau de Versailles. <laughs> and uh, um, it was 72 steps from where I garaged my car in the basement to my attic under the eaves with the servants. And I lived there nearly a year. So the amazing thing about working on this book, too, was that not only, not only is she fascinating herself, but there are so many characters who came. You know, so we were talking one day, and, well, who came to dinner? Um, Charles well, de Gaulle. Well, the Monaco's Charles de Gaulle, <laughs> um, who's notoriously difficult and very tall. Well, Florence was very tall, too. She spoke quite fluent but execrable French. Um, and she did not hesitate to address Charles de Gaulle, who I think had ne never met anybody who dared to be so straightforward with him, and so for once was silence. I think, um, you know, we, we haven't talked about this ever in front of an audience, but I, I had this realization recently. One of the, one of the meals that Florence wanted Anne to, to oversee was a Thanksgiving dinner, for American friends who were coming. And when she described to me our Thanksgiving dinners, I honestly, this year I was thinking, I can't make a Thanksgiving dinner, like, because they just sound so horrible when you listen to someone describe what, you know, just, uh, well, she had oyster stuffing and, oh. <laughs> um, oh, we, and I, Florence said to me, just to finish with the other guests, um, you, we had the Monacos um, and we had the Windsors, but never together. <laughs> um, so for the first thing Florence did, she sent me to Fauchon on the Madeleine, which is the top food store, to buy some peculiar stuff called sparkling burgundy, which was made specially for the American market, um, which is sweet, Fizzy white, uh, red wine. And <laughs> then she sent or ordered, and the fishmonger was mystified, um, something like four dozen oysters for the stuffing. And of course, French oysters are not like American oysters. And when they were put, and then she ordered the turkeys, and she wanted the biggest possible turkey. And French in France, you don't want a big turkey. It's universally recognized that not tiny turkeys, but you want a kind of six, maximum seven kilo turkey, 12 pounds, that sort of thing. Um, and Florence wanted these huge giants. Anyway, couldn't get them, so she apologized to her guests for the smallness of the turkey and they'd been stuffed with oyster stuffing. And you see it's fishy and it's salty. We'd started out with borscht, which is sweet, we and red. We had red sparkling burgundy, which was also sweet. God knows how they'd made it. 
Certainly. So not. she's going to make you not want to cook this for Thanksgiving. <laughs> we had little um, dishes of roasted nuts and um, candied fruits. Uh, we had pumpkin pie with marshmallow on the top. And the way she says uh, it, right? You can't pie. possibly ever eat puree. Like <laughs> um, we would have had, I'm sure, mashed potato. And, oh, pumpkin, um, pecan pie, very sweet, of course, and one or two other pies. Anyway, I just... The the French and the Florence really wanted to introduce everyone to the very best of a Thanksgiving dinner. Um... (laughs) It's and ruined it Thanksgiving just, for me. I just, I will say that. I, I'm going to make Pajarskis for Thanksgiving. And I'm sure your Thanksgiving dinner is not at all like that. And you limit these strange things like sparkling burgundy. Anyway. Um, so but it's apropos of the season. There, um, the, other, the other person that, that well, another person. There, there are a few very prominent people in this book. Julia's coming. And Julia, you'll see, Julia sort of hung out with us in the kitchen because Anne does a killer imitation of Julia. But, um, but Anne's married to Mark Chernyavsky. And um, he, he was very present and involved with the book. He's a brilliant editor. And had his hand in. I wouldn't, mostly I didn't let them sit in the room together and tell stories together because, you know, I'm sure you have all had this experience. If a husband and wife are telling a story, they have their own version. I'm about (laughs) to tell a story, and Mark, when he hears me tell it, says, doesn't remember it at all this way. We met in Paris. He'd been to Oxford, me to Cambridge. He was an economist, so we had things in common. And Mark, to me, was an exotic plant. His father was Russian and a traveling um, Jewish musician, child prodigy, had traveled the world. His mother came from Vancouver, Canada. Mark had been brought up in France. Um, And here was me just from Yorkshire. And... We got on very well. We both moved to the States, me to New York. Um, not, I mean, following one the other. Mark went to work in Washington for the World Bank, and I landed a job at Gourmet Magazine, and we saw each other. But Mark always said um, this was the first job that Mark found me this was as food editor of the Washington Star. Um, and here I am at my desk creating the food section. And that was the promotional picture. Um, and Mark always said, because he's a very straightforward person, sweetie, I'm very fond of you, but you're this girl from Yorkshire I know nothing about rural Yorkshire or agriculture. I know I'm not going to marry you. And I thought, well. And then one. We can make her cry if we keep her talking here. (laughs) 
he was he was insistent. He would never marry her. They took a the the other part of this book and the other part of writing it is they've done extraordinary amounts of traveling. But their first trip together was on a fourth class boat to Morocco, where Mark got sick and Anne didn't. Um, but um, but on that trip, she discovered and she told me this, and I can see the tears welling up that she was in love with him and that she wanted to marry him. And he was equally insistent that they would never marry. And, and I mean, and he, he tells the story the same way to this day. But um, so she decided, I have to get over this. I was this. working at Gourmet, and I, yes, which was why I went to the States. Um, I was working at Gourmet, and I went in one morning, and on my desk, was a telex and I opened it and it said sweetie will you marry me if the answer is we 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 come in 10 days time for marriage San Jose love Mark and that was San Jose Costa Rica not San Jose California and so I did. <laughs> and Mark gave me instructions on what to do. We both needed our birth certificates. I had to call my parents and tell them, which I never would have done otherwise. Um, he sent me to collect his birth certificate in Washington. His next-door neighbor who is now a Supreme Court Justice, Stephen Breyer. And so Steve roasted out Mark's birth certificate. I went down to San Jose and in my kitchen, Spanish, um, went first to the British consulate and then um, downtown to, to City Hall, fixed up for us, following Mark's instructions, to get married. Um, we were only the sixth marriage registered since the founding of the consulate in the early 1900s. <laughs> um, we went up a volcano after we were married in the morning because Mark said, just like Mark, well, we've got to do something this afternoon. We're going to do this afternoon. <laughs> and we had a banana sandwich on the way down. The great, the great thing about Mark... Um, I mean, he has an extraordinary memory, too. So there were times when he would tell me something, and then I could kind of feed that to Anne, and, and she'd remember. And sometimes wake up in the middle of the night remembering. I don't know if any of you have ever written memoir or personal essay, but once you start to remember, you know, it, it really does... All sorts of things come back. Um, yes. So she would write notes, and I would come in, and she'd have things she wanted to talk about. But when late in the process, Mark... Um, um, who who was raised in France but is Brit was born in Great Britain and spent some time in Canada and um, he read through the whole manuscript and he came sat down with me and he said now Amy I I'm really happy with it it's it's good but there's one problem there are too many eyes 
the word I. And he had circled through the entire... Now, it's a memoir. There are a lot of I's in memoirs because it's, the, it's an I story. But he had circled every I in the manuscript. And we had to just convince him that it was okay for there to be that many I's. But, um, and then it was about six years later, probably, that we met Julia because um, being on the Washington Star... Um, I got to know a lot of the food personalities of the time. And we were living in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Mark was going to Harvard. And um, I'd written... It was Grand Diploma Cooking Course, a 20-volume series. And Julia wrote me a message saying of congratulation all letters, of course, in those days, um, and said, I would love to meet you. Um, Come and see us, come to the television taping. And Julia had been on the go. She was very well known by then, probably about 10 years. So um, I went round, and I was nine months pregnant, I remember very clearly. We invited Julia to dinner, and um, she walked in, and there was some country... Well, of course, I'd done all the cooking. And it was quite awe-inspiring to cook for Julia. But I then later learned that, of course, we talked the same language. We liked the same foods, country, French foods. We liked simple, hearty kind of things. Um, and she saw the pate, and she said, My, that looks good and cut herself a slice. And from then on, she was a very close friend um, for just over 40 years. And so there are lots of great Julia stories, and too, that we want. Julia, if we could just go back, because there was an early... That's it. There, of course, is Julia. Um, and this was at the opening, or around the opening time of La Varenne in Paris, and I think several of you here have been to La Varenne, either in Paris or at Chateau du Fay in Burgundy. Um, and Julia was an enormous inspiration. I have a whole um, correspondence with Julia during the sort of planning and I got to read opening. all the letters, too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. That was great. And so that, that was fun. You can see she was having a good time. Um, there are all sorts of Julia stories. I'm not dead certain. I told you this little one. But Julia would always um, call whenever she came to France. She would call at school, and she would come and have lunch with the students. And I always had the students. Um, they, of course, ate what they had cooked that morning, it was usually lunch for Julia. And um, we were testing some Alsatian recipes. And one of them was a failure. Uh, but never mind, one of my rules was that if it's a failure, you have to look at it and decide why. And um, so we were taught, Julia and I were talking about the food. And she said, well, she said, I don't think that's very successful. It looks like the cat's been sick. 
And it was very unlike Julia. She always encouraged everybody and would say, well, you know, you made a little mistake, but some chopped parsley or, you know, some helpful. But I always remember that one. Because what on earth can you, can say, can you say to help? Well, as, as the, it's in the, the, that story's in the book, and the students, as, as I recall, the students were kind of happy because nobody had liked it. It was chick livers. Yes. And no one wanted Chicken to liver them. dumplings. And they'd gone flat, like a pancake, and yeah. gray, and not appetizing. <laughs> so that recipe would have been a recipe test, actually, um, was a reject. Because <laughs> we were testing recipes all the time. And has taught so many thousands of people, and um, so many people were trainees, and I guess some people in this room were at La Varenne. Um I interviewed um, 45 people. We have at least one of our trainees, who is Nicole, who is now my assistant, who is from here in San Diego, um, and is a wonderful addition to the lover and band of trainees and cooks. Um, so so um, I interviewed 45 people who have worked with Anne, chefs and trainees and students and were any of these, none of these people. I didn't interview Emily. No, but these are quite distinguished people. You'll recognize some of them. Um, the left is Shirley Correa, Emeril Lagas, there's me looking rather different in the middle or younger, Julia, Martin Yan, and oh, Joanne Killeen from the um, Good Restaurant. And that guy at the back, um, after that, shortly after that picture, went to jail. He was, you can only just see him, he was the mayor of Providence, Rhode Island. Yes, yes, Buddy something. That's him? Hmm. Nice picture, isn't it? Hiding in the shadows. You Hiding see. in the shadows. <laughs> Absolutely, we were going to shock him to the authorities. Um, but it was interesting, you know, interviewing people because everybody, when when you know somebody, everyone has a little window into what they think the the person's life is about. So I would get these little windows. So the people who had known Anne when Lavarenz started in 1975. There are a number of trainees who were early trainees. Faye, who's almost always here. It's almost odd not seeing her in the oh, audience. Well, she does live in LA. She lives in LA, yeah. northern LA, too. She says we tell different stories every time. So she comes to different. Um, but, but so by, get, by hearing their stories, I could also you know, hear things that I then would ask Anne about. Um, and we haven't mentioned Chateau Dufay and then it would be lovely to have some questions. Yes. There's Chateau Dufay where in I'm and Mark made three took on three major adventure in our, adventures in our lives. Uh, one was getting married, one was opening La Varenne and the third one was buying this wonderful Burgundian property dating from the 1640s. And when we lived there, we explored the hectare, that's more than two acres, of walled vegetable garden, a, um, a wine press from 1751, 
a walnut press. We um, reinstituted the bread oven. Um, it was an amazing, amazing experience. And I, and I have to just say this, that, that I, you know, I'm not from the food world at all, so this was all new to me. And isn't it interesting that you can write so vividly all about it? I got to eat a lot. <laughs> but what I, what I was going to say about the Chateau, this is one story, but there was, when I, when I went to the Chateau, um, I was, Anne kindly arranged, one of the chefs who, who had been a teaching chef at the Chateau, um, and has a two-star restaurant in Sans, which is a town very nearby, to prepare a meal for me. And so I went and had this wonderful two-star meal. And then he drove me to the chateau. And as we were driving up, there's this beautiful winding road sort of through the woods. And he stopped. There's a sign that says to Chateau de Fay, and there was an arrow. And he said, we have to stop here. And we got out of the van, and he started to cry and he started to talk about how she had changed his life because she taught him how to teach and how that had opened up the world to him. And, you know, I, I, that's what I, I found again and again, that she has changed so many people's lives in such profound ways. And, you know, as somebody who didn't come from the food world, I think I, I had no idea how, how really profound... Um, a cooking teacher could be and how important Lava Ren is. And I, as we've been doing this book tour, too, I find out more and more because um, people's lives were changed going there. That's what cookbooks do. Cookbooks pass on the experience of a generation or possibly even almost a previous generation. But cooking is such a very... Um, tactile as well as an intellectual um, art, I insist, that um, it's handed down from generation to generation and it's extraordinarily important to pass on what one knows oneself to the next generation. Shall we do questions? questions? Anybody have any questions? We didn't catch the location of the chateau. The chateau is in northern Burgundy. Um, it's no longer um, in operation. I mean, we've moved over here. We've retired. Um, I give a few classes every year, and you can find out about them on our website and invite um, the top chefs in L.A. to come and teach but we're no longer giving Lavarin classes in France, with much regret. I think there was a question here. here. Yes. Uh, maybe I was we'll... interested, uh, when you were standing in the photograph, uh, with a Mexican lady that was the chef at this particular chateau or venue. Chateau de Versailles. The yes. Chateau de Versailles. So yes. I would, and there, there's such differences between the two cooking traditions. And I was wondering, you taught her the French. Did she ever uh, pass on or show you any of the Mexican no. cooking? No. No. In the, the, my voice sort of goes down. 
Um, she cooked mainly in the States, but had been obviously born, brought up in Mexico. Nobody would have thought, this is a long time ago, this is the early 1960s, nobody would have thought of um, exploring ethnic cuisines. There's been a revolution since I began cooking and teaching cooking and getting immersed in it. Um, you would, for one thing, not have been able to find the, the, any of the ingredients. You wouldn't have found cornmeal, you wouldn't have found chilies, you wouldn't have found any of the seasonings. But nobody was remotely, particularly in France, I mean, which, where it's sort of still true, the French are firmly convinced that only French cuisine matters. Now, that's um, seeing one or two nods around the audience. Um, everybody everywhere is traveling much more. Um, ingredients, thanks to rapid transport, are infinitely more available so that um, people are getting far more interested in what everybody else is doing and what they personally have tasted in different places. Can I try it at home? But in those days, look, I mean, World War II had only ended less than 20 years before. We were all happy. I could just remember enough to remember shortage, even potatoes and bread on the ration. That was after the war. That was in 1946 and 1947. Um, so we were all so delighted to have delicious, simple, good French cooking. Your husband took you on a journey to San Jose, and it's very clear to me that you've taken him on a journey during your married life. Yes. And I'd like to know what he did in Paris when you moved back there and opened your cooking school, and I'd like to know how he feels about the journey you've taken him on. Well, the journeys have been Mark, and I'll come to that in a minute. I have been extraordinarily lucky. I mean, I was lucky to find Mark, but um, we got stuck. Mark said, the World Bank is a golden cage, we must move back to Europe. So we did. And I said, you've got to find something for me to do. Hence, La Varenne, down a little bit down the road. Um, but we had to find, we wanted to do it in Paris. Mark couldn't, was keeping the family. Um, and we had to move to Luxembourg, which was the back of beyond in those days. And we got stuck in Luxembourg for two and a half years. The children were very little, so that was just fine. Okay. Um, and I was getting the school going. I was going to have to move with the children to open the school. Mark still hadn't found a job. Commuting marriages now are common. But, I mean, they certainly weren't in those days. 
There weren't auto routes as far as Luxembourg, for goodness sake. Um, and a job opened at the World Bank in Paris, the only job for an Englishman. There were 10 professional staff, and only one traditionally was an Englishman. A friend of Mark's was occupying it, and he said, Mark, you should apply. Mark did. He was beaten out by another Englishman, and it had to be approved by Robert McNamara, who was then head of the World Bank. And McNamara rejected the guy who'd got it, because he hadn't worked for the bank before. And so Mark got the job. And that was just, that was another, you can hear my voice, one of those miracles. Because without Mark opening the school, I just cannot imagine what it would have been like. Um, On the journey front, before, after we were married, very quick, but to me, fascinating little story, um, Mark was sent, before I started the job at the Star, Mark was sent to Hong Kong. And I said, oh, sweetie, will you take me too? And he said, well, it's halfway around the world. If you come with me, you must go on by yourself. And so he sent me to... Um, we touched down in Saigon, um, but only at the end of the runway because it was uh, the Vietnam War. I went on to Cambodia and Angkor Wat, um, Thailand, um, Delhi, and the Taj Mahal. Um, I'm going to miss something out, but uh, Persia, Persia, Isfahan. Persia, Isfahan, Persepolis, Jerusalem. Then on to Jerusalem, um, Petra. Then on to Egypt, Cairo, Luxor. Um, then on to Nice to meet Mark on the tarmac, and I was diverted to Barcelona. This but is anyway. in the '60s when she's in her 20s and she's alone. Just, I mean, to put that little perspective. Yes, on this, traveling I mean there the were no credit cards. That didn't exist. Every country had a different um, currency, and I did all of that in two and a half weeks. Yeah, I mean, I sort of boggle when I think about it. Mm-hmm. Two more, and um, then that will finish. I'm wondering, because you sound like a woman who went on a different path than the majority of women, yeah. going to college and moving to France, and was, were you born that way, or did people inspire you along the way? Um, what made you like that? I must like have that? been born that way. <laughs> you could see me as that little girl, and my father always said, and you're so determined, he would say. Um, and I just, I've always gone for an adventure. I mean, this is the latest adventure, really. It, it's a very small one, is moving to Santa Monica from living in France. I mean, it's a very different sort of life. And, 
I am, by the way, an American as of 40 years, though it doesn't sound like it. <laughs> um, I just, if I see something to do, I sort of do it. From what I know about her, I think she was born that way. That was like, this is what I'm going to do. And whenever she decides she's going to do something, don't try to get in her way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, my father used to get quite cross about that. Um, But I've had a wonderful, very lucky life. And both our children are very independent. Um, Particularly, Emma is a kind of reflection of me, really. She's now um, working in London. She's in not-for-profit fundraising. Um, She works... She's one of the sort of head people in uh, the crisis group. And before that, she was in L.A. with Human Rights Watch. And then Simon, as I said, is CEO of, I don't know, two, three... 100,000 hectare company in Ukraine. And it's that huge, large-scale agriculture that we're not supposed to like. But (laughs) he enjoys it. So we're all finished. Thank you all for a very kind welcome.